Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore how primary sources can be used in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. We're really lucky to have, for our second episode of this season, an interview with Julia Lyon. She is the author of A Dinosaur Named Ruth, How Ruth Mason Discovered Fossils in Her Own Backyard. I loved our conversation, and what I really hope is that people take Julia's book and read through it, and as they're reading through it, listen to the podcast episode at the same time. I felt like there were so many examples of Julia's research that connected with primary sources that showed themselves in the book over and over and over again. And I thought it was a real tribute to that research process and how primary sources end up impacting the final book, not just the words in the book, but to Julia's sharing around Alexandra Bai's illustrations, how some of the illustrations are also impacted by primary source photographs and other sources that are directly connected with the topic and the time period, in this case, around Ruth Mason. It's a wonderful interview. I know you'll enjoy it. Give it a listen. We're here with Julia Lyon, the author of A Dinosaur Named Ruth, How Ruth Mason Discovered Fossils in Her Own Backyard. Julia, thank you so much for joining us on the Primary Source Podcast. Thank you, Tom, for inviting me. I'm honored. I want to jump right in to anyone who is not familiar with Ruth's story or your story of Ruth. Can you tell us a little bit about this picture book, A Dinosaur Named Ruth? Sure. A Dinosaur Named Ruth is the story of Ruth Mason, um, a pioneer girl who found fossils in her own backyard when she was about seven years old. Um, she spent almost her entire life trying to figure out what they were. Um, and it was only when she was almost 80 years old, sorry to give away some of the ending here, that she did find out that they were dinosaur bones and got to have the incredible experience as an octogenarian of seeing a dinosaur quarry dug in her backyard. Um, and those dinosaur bones are now in museums all over the world. I want to jump back in just a couple minutes to to kind of Ruth's heyday when she was in her 80s and when like all of the this uh, all these finds were happening. But I want to circle back and just ask, where did the inspiration for this story come from? How did you find out about Ruth's story? You know, I had taken a nonfiction writing seminar. I was interested in writing books for kids. Um, and I had heard that at the time uh, that books on women, biographies on women were very popular. And I thought that's, that's interesting. You know, as I'm a mom of three, we do a ton of reading and we had already been doing a lot of nonfiction reading as a former journalist. I find those stories really appealing. Um, and I had always noticed that my oldest child, my son, when we would read a book, particularly a nonfiction book at the very end, he would say to me, mom, is this a true story? Um, and I've just found both with this book and when I'm talking to kids, they're, they're inspired by true stories. Even if 
if it's, you know, a TV show or a movie. Um, I just found that very powerful. So I thought I would chase down a true story, but wasn't sure what I wanted to write about. Um, and um, I often tell this story when I'm meeting with kids that I literally drove by a dinosaur statue and thought, paleontologists. And I thought, female American paleontologists. We all know there are many books about Mary Anning, and she's a wonderful subject. Um, but I felt that what was lacking was books on uh, female paleontologists. Um, and I decided to seek one out. Um, and I stumbled on Ruth's name um, online. I thought for probably three days that she was a paleontologist um, until I began to understand that she was just an ordinary person. Um, and I thought in the end that actually made her more interesting. Um, just someone who'd had the instinct and the curiosity and the persistence to try to find out what it was she was finding in her own backyard. So I, I, I love that you just kind of saw that need and you just sought it out like okay, there's a need for this type of story. Who's going to fill it? And you kind of mentioned this beginning of your research. As you went deeper into your research process, what kind of primary sources did you come across connected with Ruth? You know, some of the earliest things I did um, as a former journalist, I knew there would be some records out there. Um, so I chased down her obituary, um, which took some doing. I had to reach out to um, a paper in South Dakota and I got them to send it to me uh, after printing it from microfiche, which I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of. Um, that's one of the things I actually really enjoy as a, uh, as a, when I'm researching books is reading old newspapers, but sometimes, as you all know, they're just not readily available. Um, and I chased that down. I also reached out to the South Dakota um, Historical Society, I believe it was, and they shared with me some census records. Um, and probably the, the best thing they sent me was um, a local history, almost like a, a genealogy that um, various people in this town named Faith, where she was from, had written about the, the original settlers, well, the European to be clear, European settlers um, at that time. And so what were those families' histories? And um, there were some really interesting things about Ruth's family and some great details that I did weave into the story, including um, Ruth loving to ride stick horses and climb trees. I love, the, it's those little details, I think, that when you're finding that kind of information in a primary source, it's, it's those little details that make some of these nonfiction picture books, these historically based picture books come alive, which I think is just uh, fascinating. When you look at your story about Ruth, where do you see the impact of primary sources and that primary source research in addition to the one you just shared uh, of, those, of those kind of fine details? Well, the biggest primary source for sure were the people that I spoke with um, on the phone, in person, or even I corresponded with some of the paleontologists in Wales who um, were there when the skeleton that is the reason for the title of the book um, was installed. Um, but I went out to South Dakota. The uh, Ruth did not have children, but she has a grandniece who now lives on her land, who was so kind to me and walked me around the land, um, showed me the log cabin that Ruth 
grew up in. Um, I show kids at my school visits. Um, I, have, I took a photograph just with my iPhone of another family photograph that then I've now blown up to show kids. Um, and that photograph both inspired me in my writing, and I share that with Alexandra Bai, um, who did the wonderful illustrations. Um, I also was able to meet um, with Rick Brooks, um, the fossil hunter who stumbled on Ruth um, at his home in Rapid City. So those conversations, and he had more photographs that he was able to share with me, um, and also some um, magazine articles from the time that I probably never would have found because they're no longer in print. Uh, there's no way I would have stumbled on them. Um, so though that also was help, helped me to verify some of the stories people were telling me, particularly about Ruth being a young girl, being around seven years old, finding um, these bones. And it just made me feel that I had more authority in the writing of the story. I want to go into that uh, Ruth being a young girl, because in the back matter, you kind of referenced that that was a little bit of a tricky area to research, that that there maybe wasn't all of the information that you would have liked to have found. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, I heard, I kept hearing the age seven. So when, when you, I think my instinct as a reporter is when you hear something enough and there's enough stories about it, you often think, okay, there may be some, some truth to that. Um, and that was in one of these magazine articles um, that was written by someone who talked to Ruth. So that made me feel also that that information was more authentic. Um, but I didn't have an exact story of her, of her the moment she picked up a bone because there probably wasn't a moment when she picked up a bone. You know, I thought about my own kids um, and all kids, I think, pick up things um, in the world around them. And I remembered how my own kids often put them in their pockets. So um, I, I thought that that would have been a very likely thing that Ruth might have done. But I thought, gosh, would girls at that time have had pockets in their dresses and their aprons? And I actually reached out to some um, some people who I who are experts in period clothing from that time. And I asked them, is it possible that girls at that time would have had pockets in their aprons? And their answer was yes. Um, so I felt that that was a very likely scenario that Ruth would have brought home these pieces. And of course, when she was young, she wouldn't have been bringing home large bones. Um, she would have been bringing home very small things, um, which I know having been out to the land is exactly the kind of thing that you would find. I, I love, you're hitting on all these different all these different elements of primary source research that, number one, I think that as a, a historically based picture book reader, I think a lot of, of young readers, and I even think adults, don't necessarily appreciate the, the level of detail of the research that's happening uh, on, on an author's end and likely on an illustrator's end as well. Um, you mentioned just that story about the pockets, just getting that little detail. You mentioned the story about talking to the paleontologist to where where some of these bones are residing now. So you've got this kind of degree of separation from Ruth herself, but still this this connection. And then um, the the talk with the with the gentleman who initially kind of went onto Ruth's land and confirmed, oh yeah, these this is an important place. Uh, those are. I think just amazing finds. I mean, they just feel like as you're telling me those those things, I'm thinking about the the text in this story and how much all of that had to shape what ended up becoming your story about Ruth. It's just an incredible process. I mean, I probably consulted with three paleontologists at different times, making sure we had the illustrations of the bones, what would the color of the bones have been? How do bones change as they weather over time? Um, do dinosaurs of this type, Edmontosaurus and Ectans, have 
head crests. Um, science on this that has changed over time. And I ended up reading, you know, executive summaries of various uh, paleontological papers. I mean, things that you don't think are going into these stories. Um, and I was even thinking about that for, you know, the teachers and librarians out there. It's amazing that some of these studies are intimidating or the, uh, the research, but you can read the executive summaries and share that with the kids and, and they might be fascinated by what's in them. I've got to ask one kind of detail question. I've got this, your book right now in front of me opened up to the page. Um, when and I want to go back one page. Oh, when Rick Brooks goes to Ruth's house and she brings him out and we've got this, these fossils that are kind of laid out in more like almost like a decorative artistic pattern. Yeah. Is this what she yeah. did with these bones? So supposedly, yes, that picture comes out of a lot of conversations with Rick and his memories of what he saw um, at the time, um, you know, that they were, there was the blade, the blades of grass, everything was carefully arranged, everything was trimmed. Um, that is the kids, when I speak with kids, that is hands down their favorite, their favorite illustration, which is so interesting. Um, and then of course the, the question comes up, well, is this exactly what it looked like? And I wish I could tell you <laughs> that it was, I did ask, um, you know, uh, or, or Ruth's family about that and they don't, they don't know exactly. So there had to be some, um, you know, imagining there. Um, but we tried, you know, as hard as we could to, to have it echo what, what Rick told us. It sounds like from the questions you're asking these paleontologists from the, que from the questions and the information you're getting from from Rick, I mean, the due diligence was done. And um, I do think when I read nonfiction or historically based picture books to my students, uh, just like you said, you read with your children, um, I get that same question, is this real? And I think sometimes it's the illustrations that throw them. You get these beautifully artistically done illustrations that are so connected to also the fiction that they read. That yeah, it, it, that's right. Yeah, it becomes hard to kind of delineate, but but at the same time, um, as you're mentioning, the the due diligence I'm sure was done by um, Alexandra. Is it Alexandra Bai? Is that how you pronounce her name? Alexandra. Yep. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure that was done with her. And you said you shared some of your findings with her to help her in her work that she did on the illustrations. I did. Um, I emailed many photographs that I had from that my trip to South Dakota, um, photographs of the landscape, photographs of the now uh, falling down log cabin, um, uh, photographs of any bones that I had seen. Um, and then I shared with her a photograph of Rick and um, and Ruth together on her sofa. And that picture is to some degree recreated in that in that illustration in the book. And I love that because some of the art in the background is even similar to the art that was in her house. So Alexander really tried to be faithful to that photo. I'm looking at that page right now and can just imagine that photograph uh, as you're saying that. Let's go back to, to this moment here. And, and this is when things started to really, in a way, get exciting for Ruth, or, or at least exciting in a different way, right? Because in a sense, like her work and her findings were verified, and then things really took off. But she's really an older woman at this point. Um, when you did this research, how did you kind of decide how to pace this story in, in the sense that um, you, you've You've got her at a, as as kind of a young as a child around seven, and then you have her mm -hmm. kind of in, as a middle aged person, maybe twenties or thirties, and then you have her 
in this 80 years old or 80 year old ish portion of the story where where she's got all these people on her land and they're um, finding all of these bones that end up in these museums. Was there some kind of working through not only in what you found through your research, but also just as a storyteller making a decision about like what was actually the, the kind of the moments in Ruth's life that you were going to share to tell this story? That's a great question. Um, there was more of her childhood, um, little bits and details that we know are true that ended up in the back matter. Um, but I think we needed, we wanted to move forward to, you know, a, this lifetime of questioning and persistence. And that's why we quickly moved more into like the adult years with the letter writing, um, and the waiting and the collecting. And I think we wanted the story so much to highlight her persistence, um, and her, um, perseverance and, curiosity that just like could not be defeated despite the fact that we know that people some people even wrote her back and said you're wrong these are buffalo bones um you know this is nothing of any consequence but that the fact that she just kept going and then i just love i think this book um a lot of people don't talk about this but i think that this book is a celebration of aging um, and that, you know, my own parents are in their 80s, um, and they're very vibrant and engaged to the world, and um, I hope it celebrates that kind of um, stage of life as well. I think that's incredible, and I love that you've got kind of this idea of what the story is that maybe not everyone necessarily sees, but it sounds like as you were writing it or as it was coming together, this was something that was in your mind, which is, uh, and, and that personal connection with your parents I think is awesome. Uh, I want to I end with, with one last primary source question, if I could. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there was uh, a primary source that you found that in some way surprised you or maybe was unexpected or changed the way that you thought about the story as you were doing your research. So I've been thinking about this question because um, I've heard you ask other guests this. Um, and I think my answer is the fossils themselves. Um, when I was out on Ruth's land um, with her grandniece, we walked around and she picked up what to me looked inconsequential, but they were dinosaur fossils. Um, and, and these were small and certainly Ruth would have stumbled on probably, I know she stumbled on larger ones too, but it was a great example that, you know, there are clues to, to the to fascinating stories all around you. And I, as a newcomer and someone who didn't know that landscape, I just would have thought they were rubble rocks you know but ruth knew enough to to notice that there was something different about them and um you know if we can if we if we can call a dinosaur fossil a primary source which i think we can um then i think that was one of the things that really surprised me is how um just how ordinary these look but how important they were i think we can actually absolutely call in this case a dinosaur bone a primary source a dinosaur fossil um i as you were saying that it just made me think that in some way that might have even allowed you to put yourself in young Ruth's shoes, like when she's walking mm -hmm. that land and seeing this, as you said, something that looked inconsequential. But then the more she saw it, the more she walked that land, the more of them she saw maybe, uh, that, that awakening, that realization that she came to, which really comes across in your story and, and makes it um, one of the many things that makes it a, a really special tale uh, about Ruth and, and her life that she lived. 
Julia, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the Primary Source podcast and sharing with us all of this rich background about your story, A Dinosaur Named Ruth. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure.